ideally you would be listening to this podcast as you sip a glass of mint tea. Poured, of course, in the Moroccan fashion from a great height so that it's almost foamy in the glass. If there's no mint tea to hand, well, never mind. In today's podcast, we are still going to stimulate your senses with the sights and the sounds and even the aromas of Marrakesh. There is a lot to see in Morocco's fabled desert city. There are souks to get lost in, rooftop bars to relax in, and so much great food to eat. I think we should get started, don't you? Hello, I'm Uti Yonker, and you're listening to Walk the World, the podcast that lets you go traveling without ever leaving home. Today, we're heading to Marrakesh, which is a place that tends to divide people. Some visitors love it. Others think it's too much of a tourist town. And it is true that tourism helps keep this place afloat. But it's because of tourism that the town has seen a number of terrific restoration projects in recent years, some of which we're going to check out today. First, though, we're going to go look at some dead people. Well, at their tombs, at least. So Marrakesh's tombs, the Sardian tombs, they're no ordinary mausoleum. They're around 500 years old and they were built mainly by one ruler, Sultan Ahmed al-Mansur al-Dabi, who definitely had one eye fixed on eternity. But it wasn't just himself he wanted to immortalise. It was his wives, it was his advisors, basically it was anyone he took a shine to. So this complex contains two mausoleums that hold 66 tombs for princes and various nobles, but then head out into the gardens and there's another hundred tombs for various oddbods as well. So there's a lot to see. And the reason you want to see it is the workmanship. The Sultan clearly had all the best tradies on speed dial and they delivered these extraordinary carvings and this beautiful tile work. The most beautiful tomb of all, yeah, you guessed it. It belongs to the Sultan himself. It's called the Chamber of Twelve Pillars. And yes, it has 12 pillars. It also has a whole load of Italian Carrera marble and a fair whack of gold leaf as well. It's pretty eye-catching. Now, unfortunately, things didn't quite pan out the way the Sultan planned. He was the last of his dynasty and the new rulers, the Alawites, they weren't that keen on celebrating the people who'd been there before. So they basically walled up the entire complex on the basis of out of sight, out of mind. You know what? It worked. It wasn't until 1917 that aerial photographs revealed the existence of the tombs and they were later uncovered and restored. While we're on the subject of royals, there's another restored royal monument nearby that I want to show you. It's called the Bahia Palace and it was built by a grand vizier uh, with the aim of being the, the most ornate palace in the world. And with 150 rooms, patios and gardens spread out over hectares, they gave it a pretty good go. Unfortunately, there's actually no furniture left in the palace because when the vizier died, the place was ransacked by, would you believe, his staff, who carried off everything they could lift, basically. Um, apparently, the wives and the concubines got in on the action as well. Nonetheless, the interiors are exquisite, particularly if you go down to the harem where the wives and the concubines lived. Almost every surface from the floor to the ceiling is ornately embellished in typical style. 
While we're on the subject of royals, there's another restored monument nearby that I want to show you too. It's called the Bahia Palace and it was built by a Grand Vizier and designed to be the grandest palace in the world. And with 150 rooms and patios and gardens spread over eight hectares, they gave it a pretty good go. The one thing that's missing from the palace is furniture. And that's because when the Vizier died, the staff ransacked the palace, carrying off everything that they could lift. Nonetheless, the interiors are absolutely beautiful, especially when you get to the harem where the Vizier's four wives and 24 concubines lived. Almost every surface from the floor to the ceiling is ornately embellished in typical Islamic style. From here, it's time to plunge into the souks. Now, if you're a regular listener, you'll know that there's nothing I love quite as much as getting a little bit lost when I'm exploring. And in Marrakesh, getting lost is almost guaranteed when you go exploring in the souks. And I love these souks because people have been shopping here for more than a thousand years. And I love the fact that while some of the hundreds of stores clustered into these narrow alleys are aimed at tourists, this is still where locals go to do their shopping, picking up anything from shoes to spices. Now, it's perhaps no surprise that my favourite souks are the ones that are all about the food. So there's the olive souk, souk ableu, where stall after stall is laden with olives in dozens of different colours. There's Raba Kedima, which used to be the slave marker, but it's now the place to buy spices. And actually, a bag of spice is a great souvenir. It's cheap, it won't weigh you down, and you'll actually use it. So the classic Moroccan spice is Ras Al Hanout, and that's this beautiful blend of coriander, cumin, cinnamon, black pepper, ginger, and a few more, and it's used in so many classic Moroccan dishes. If you're feeling peckish, follow your nose to Mahoui Alley, which is named after the slow roast lamb that the stalls here specialize in. So these stalls are family affairs and they're passed down from one generation to the next. And often the lamb is actually cooked in the stalls, but not in an oven. It's cooked in an underground clay pit inside the stalls. And these pits, some of these, some of them anyway, are big enough to fit a dozen whole sheep at a time. And the meat is fabulous. It's so tender. It just falls apart in your mouth. It's a real treat. Once we emerge from the souks, there are a couple of interesting places I want to show you. One is the Maison de la Photographie, which is a beautifully restored building where you can explore this extraordinary collection of vintage photos of Morocco as it used to be. Nearby is another glorious building, the Medesa Ben Yusuf, which is an old Islamic college where students studied religion from the 14th century all the way through to the 1960s. And again, it's the incredible ornamentation here that is so beautiful. Rows and rows of intricate carvings, just exquisite. Now, the thing when you go walking in Marrakesh is it's easy to get distracted. There's always a lot going on. It's crowded, it's busy. But if you can, it's really worthwhile to slow down and take in the surroundings to notice some of the things that are quintessentially Marrakesh. For instance, all those closed doors. One of the things I love about Moroccan architecture is the way that it keeps its secrets. 
you'll pass by a blank wall with a simple door inside and you've got no clue to what lies behind it. But if you had the opportunity to push it open and walk through, you might find yourself in a richly decorated mansion or a lush courtyard oasis. It makes every door you walk past an intriguing secret and it's one of the things I really enjoy about this city. Another thing to keep an eye out for is the communal ovens, which still exist on some streets. So this obviously is before the days of modern kitchens. And in the early morning, keep an eye out for the schoolgirls who you'll see dropping off the family's dough for the day. So they pick up the baked loaves on the way home and the family eats it in the evening. One local told me that the best way to find out whether any given girl in town makes a good wife is to ask the local baker because he not only gets all the gossip, he also has some insight into how domestic they are. So we're coming now to another of Marrakesh's resurrected treasures, Le Jardin Secret, or the Secret Garden. If you've visited Islamic gardens before, you'll know that these places are pure magic. They're filled with pathways and pavilions, and there's the sound of water trickling through channels and in fountains, and lush plantings of figs and pomegranates. In a place as hot as Marrakesh, of course, you need irrigation and it's the ancient irrigation systems that keep these gardens alive for centuries. So Le Jardin Secret has a particular story because we know there was a garden here 400 years ago, but over the centuries, like some of the places we talked about earlier, it just became covered in rubbish and was eventually forgotten. And it wasn't until they started doing restoration work on the adjoining Riyadh that they found the old underground irrigation system and deduced the fact that there had to be a garden. And they got English gardener Tom Stuart Smith to come and create this beautiful oasis of calm in the middle of town. However, we're not too far from our final stop, which is the complete opposite of the Jardin Secret. Perhaps the single most famous place in Marrakesh, Gemma El Fanar is a sprawling square and every evening it is transformed into this massive open air banquet with more than a hundred stalls offering all kinds of fabulous food. The stalls have numbers rather than names, which makes it a bit easier. And many of them have their own specialties, which could be grilled eggplant or tiny little Marrakesh sausages or slow-cooked lamb or even snails, which are a big mover here and which are totally delicious. There's all sorts of entertainment happening too, from snake charmers to musicians. It's a really fun night out. Just remember not to wear your best clothes because the smell from the cooking fires gets into absolutely everything. So this is our last stop. And thank you for joining me on this virtual stroll. If you're in the mood for more exploring, you'll find the first two series of Walk the World, wherever you download your favorite podcasts. And there are more stories on Marrakesh and other intriguing destinations on my website, ultiyonka.com.au. Thanks for your company, and I look forward to catching you next time on Walk the World.